Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill their hand, nor the binder of sheaves their arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. for the reading of the gospel. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke in the 21st chapter, beginning at the 10th verse. Glory be to thee, O Christ. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Would you be seated, please? Yesterday morning, Orvin texted me to say that he was experiencing cold symptoms, and as you well know, when there are any symptoms other than perfect health, we have to treat it as if it could be COVID. So uh, yesterday, uh, Orvin took some time to pre-record his sermon uh, that Collins put together for us to view this, this morning. Let us pray. Father, bring forth the fruits of your kingdom out of the soil of our suffering so we may bear witness to the supremacy of your son above all earthly powers and over against all evil in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one can say that the entire ancient history of the Jewish people is summed up in the lyrics of Psalm 129. Into this short pilgrimage song, the the whole of the Hebrew Old Testament, the story of Israel and their struggles with the world, is condensed into this psalm of remembrance that retraces with horror the long road of brutality and persecution suffered by God's people from the hands of those who intended and extended evil upon them. But at the same time, the song attests to Israel's prevailing over and above her enemies against all odds, not because of their national resilience or military might or somehow lucking out along the way, but because of the power and intervention of God protecting and rescuing them each time along this road of brutality and persecution. Now for the church, 
Psalm 129 took on Christian dimensions in light of Jesus' warnings and teachings about persecution, as we've read in our gospel, in light of Jesus himself suffering persecution and dying as the keystone of martyr of Christianity, and also in light of the same road of brutality suffered by the church since her beginnings in Jerusalem and now all over the world through the centuries. Now there's an annual report called the World Watch List that is published by Open Doors, an international Christian aid and support network that has monitored the global experience of religious discrimination among Christians since the 1950s. The report from last year saw a 60% 60, 60 global increase in the number of Christians killed for their faith during the pandemic, particularly in a number of African countries. The report summarized that more than 340 million Christians, or one in eight Christians globally, they're right now experiencing grave levels of discrimination because of their religious identity. Now I know sharing statistics like these risks bearing no real effect on our lives here in Toronto. They're helpful to the extent that we gain awareness and perspective on what's going on in the global church. So we can then respond in the ways we can, you know, in prayer, support, solidarity, advocacy. But really how we live our lives and faith here in Toronto, it's not directly influenced by the grievous reality of persecution that so many of our Christian siblings around the world are experiencing right now. So why even bring it up then? See, the subject of religious persecution has shaped and continues to shape the theological and political imagination of the church in the West today for good or for ill. See, the subject of religious persecution has some underlying impact on how we as Christians see ourselves as both citizens of God's kingdom and as citizens of this world who still have to interact with and participate in a dominant and sometimes domineering cultures around us. So I grew up in evangelical circles that upheld missions and local and global evangelization, the, the sharing of the gospel here and in other parts of the world as paramount Christian pri priorities. When I was in university, I went on three short-term mission trips to China and India, and, and those experiences were watershed moments in my own spiritual life and transformed my faith as a young adult, even shaping my awareness and perspective of global Christianity. But what led me to go on these trips in the first place was partly because I and many of my Christian peers were immersed in the stories and biographies of missionaries and martyrs of antiquity these almost legendary tales of Christians who suffered and died for their faith, bearing out of their suffering and death the fruit of spiritual revivals, of unlikely conversions of people and communities to the gospel, even transforming the lives of those who intended and extended evil against them. These stories about Christian persecution shaped my and my friends' theological and political imagination and got us thinking about the future of Christianity in Canada and around the world and what our role and participation in that vision and future would look like. 
they got us praying for revival in Toronto and around the country. They, they got us thinking creatively about how we can share and show our faith in our campuses, workplaces, and neighborhoods. Not only that, these stories informed our principal approach and attitude towards the culture around us, how we related to our neighbors, how we then ultimately considered our experience of suffering for the gospel in our context here. We felt these stories enlarged our capacity for suffering, galvanized our theology of suffering, gave us ballast to keep us afloat in an ocean of future pain and future cost as we relied upon the far surpassing joy and hope of the gospel in the way we would suffer or bear the cost. In this way, our theological and political imagination were shaped into what we trust is a fateful, sacrificial, and hope-filled vision of the Christian life in the face of costly suffering. But on the other hand, the subject of religious persecution can also shape our theological and political imagination in strange and lamentable ways. In an article in The Atlantic, Alan Noble, author and professor and co-founder of Christ and Pop Culture, he sketched out an overview of the cultural political roots of American evangelicalism's hypersensitivity and penchant to cry wolf and call foul on almost every perceived threat to Christian freedoms and rights. Now, in the article, Noble listed several global and cultural moments that he believes contributed to this evangelical persecution complex, as he calls it. This is what Noble observed. For many evangelicals, the lack of very public and dramatic persecution could be interpreted as a sign that they just aren't faithful enough. If they were persecuted, they could be confident they are saved. This creates an incentive to interpret personal experiences and news events as signs of oppression, which are ostensibly validations of our commitment to Christ. The danger of this view is that believers can come to see victimhood as an essential part of their identity. Now, some elements of this recently played out even here in Canada during the protests in our nation's capital. And even today, the recent protests remain to be highly controversial among Canadian Christians who are still divided over the subject of Christian persecution in our own country. It's still hotly debated whether or not the church is in fact experiencing systemic and targeted levels of discrimination from our own government or from our cultural and educational institutions especially during the lockdowns and closures of church buildings and Sunday gatherings. For my own life at one point, even during the same period when I was immersed in the stories and biographies of martyrs, I too held a view that suffering for my faith is an essential Christian experience. So as a freshman in university, I went and stood up on a literal soapbox beside the Eaton Center entrance at Young and Dundas Square, and I preached for about 20 minutes, yelling nonstop a message of repentance from sin and salvation in Jesus. 
Uh, most people, as you can imagine, just ignored me with only a few of my friends around me for moral support. Perhaps in the back of my mind at the time, I wanted to draw out ire from one or two passersby to bring out anger and ridicule from a few, perhaps getting someone to heckle and berate me for preaching a message of love and forgiveness in Jesus so I could feel like I've done something heroic for Jesus. Or so I can even say I was persecuted for my Christian beliefs. At the end of my preaching, I was feeling cold with no jacket on in late September, and I was losing my voice from all the yelling. We as Christians today may have also already lost our voice from all the yelling that we tend to do while the vestiges of Christendom continue to crumble around and under our secular society. See, this subject of religious persecution still shapes our theological and political imagination as Christians in the West, for good or for ill. Now, I, I share all this for us to consider why and how we would even bother with Psalm 129. It's a song about the history of brutality and persecution suffered by God's people. So how then does the psalm have any bearing on us Canadian Christians whose lives and livelihoods and loved ones are not largely threatened because of what we believe, what our religion is? Ultimately, Psalm 129 is about longing and praying for God to dismantle the machinery of evil and violence that is used against anyone. This psalm, Psalm 129, is about longing and praying for God to dismantle the machinery of evil and violence. So even though we're not suffering persecution here, there will always be others who are even now being persecuted. And Psalm 129 raises up our collective human desires for justice and peace before God, and then asking him to do something about it. So I invite us then to turn to Psalm 129 in your Bibles or apps, or in your pew Bibles. It's on page 573. Now the first half of the psalm is the psalmist looking back with both horror and amazement how Israel even got this far with all that they've been through. In verse 3, the, the psalmist likened Israel's brutal history to someone using a plowing machine, running the spike down into Jewish bodies and digging out furrows and trenches all over their backs. That's a gruesome and visceral image of deliberate evil and calculated torture. Now, if you're going to plow a field, you're intending to work the ground to get a harvest from it. But just to run trenches along a field, that alone is pointless work, except perhaps for the absurd pleasure of doing it. And then for the psalmist, Israel's oppressors work the ground of Israel's back for the singular purpose and perhaps even the singular pleasure of inflicting pain upon them perhaps intending to somehow extract and profit from the suffering of God's people. But then in verse 4, 
The psalmist recalls God's timely intervention at every moment of their distress. The psalmist remembers God would always somehow show up to then cut the cords of the wicked. The cords refer to the ropes that bound the plowing machine together along with the cattle or the oxen that would pull at it. Severing the ropes would render the machine unusable. And it's only God, according to the psalmist, who was able to dismantle and destroy the machinery of evil and violence. Now, the machinery of evil, as we all know, continues to rumble over the world, seemingly unstoppable in its mass production of misery out of those easiest to subjugate. It's constant in its supply to the most ancient industry of violence across the ages. We see this uh, ancient machinery on full steam in Ukraine. It continues to plow through unnoticed, even in the internet, in cyberbullying, in child pornography, in human sex trafficking. It plows over the most vulnerable and the poorest of the world to fill the guts and pockets of global capitalist markets and consumers. It would take a cataclysm to disrupt and dismantle the unrelenting gears of this ancient machinery. It would take a God to finally cut the ancient cords of the wicked. This is why we have now the second half of Psalm 129. It's a wish, more accurately, a prayer to God but it's a specific kind of wish, a specific kind of prayer, a particular genre of scripture that still makes Christians squirm in their seats. See, the, the prayers of imprecation or the prayers of cursing, they seem to run against the current of the Christian principle of bless those who curse you, love the enemy, forgive the oppressor, return evil with good. See, we read in verses 5 to 8, the psalmist calls upon curses on Israel's oppressors. In verse 5, for their shame as they are turned backwards, meaning for them to drop their plowing machine in the middle of their plowing that was then rendered unusable, and they're shamed for not finishing what they've started. In verse 6, for their immediate demise, like the sun scorched weeds on rooftops, in verse 7, for their uselessness, like the not even a handful of debris from the harvest field in the hands of the reapers and those who would bind up the sheaves of wheat. And then finally in verse 8, for them not to be greeted with the customary Semitic blessing for a prosperous harvest. How do these curses, these prayers of curses square with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? In an article in Christianity Today, it was written a few days ago by Tish Harrison Warren. She's an Anglican priest and author. And in that article, she reflected and struggled with the possibility and the Christianity of praying curses upon Vladimir Putin as the war in Ukraine rages on. Warren recounted this story from her seminary days, and she wrote this. I had a Northern Irish professor who lived through the Troubles, that is the 30-year ethno-nationalist violence in Northern Ireland, 
And he saw violence against the innocent firsthand. When he was younger and a seminarian himself, he rewrote a psalm for a class assignment. And in that assignment, he prayed that any terrorist who made a bomb would have it blow up in his face. In further reflection on her professor's comment, Warren wrote this, very often in the imprecatory psalms, the psalms of cursing, we're asking that people's evil actions would ricochet back on themselves. We're not praying that violence begets more violence or that evil starts a cycle of vengeance or retaliation, but we're praying that people would be destroyed by their own schemes. And as my professor prayed, that bombs would explode in bombers' faces. That's exactly what the psalmist is praying for in Psalm 129. See, just as the oppressors of Israel intended to extract and profit from the backs of God's people using their machinery of violence, the psalmist is calling upon God to dismantle the plow to destroy whatever crop they had hoped to grow from the furrowed backs of those whom they've depressed, for plague and famine to decimate their prospects of harvest, and for no one to greet and bless them in their enterprise of evil. May the bombs which they've made blow up in their faces. May their plowing our backs return on them without fruit, without crop, without a harvest. Such prayers are unconventional and even frightening to consider for us as Christians here in the West. But perhaps they are rather conventional and commonplace among people who grew up witnessing and suffering firsthand throughout multiple generations under oppressive regimes, greedy corporations, and extremist ideologues. Their prayers demand in desperation for the here and now a small withdrawal, a small withdrawal of justice from the ever accruing account of God's final judgment being saved up for the wicked in the last days. With such prayers of the oppressed, our theological and political imaginations as Christians in the West, it, it can be shaped for us to pursue a vision and a future of justice and solidarity with those in our city and those in the world who are easily preyed upon by those more powerful, wealthier, and under the illusion that they can always get away with it. See the same Jesus who taught us to love our neighbors and to love our enemies also pronounced the most extensive and most colorful language of curses upon the wealthy and powerful religious elites of his day with the most emotional outrage ever depicted of Jesus in the Gospels. You could just read the entire chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel. What I am encouraging us from our reflections in Psalm 129 is for us as Christians in the West to develop, by God's grace, a theological and political imagination 
that takes seriously not only our own present and future suffering because of our faith, but more importantly, the sufferings of others less privileged and less protected than we are here in Toronto. And we do so longing and praying for God's justice to descend upon the earth, realizing that we ourselves will be buried under his holy indignation against all evil, saved only by the cross of Jesus Christ, who absorbed into his body the abuses, the persecutions, the exploitations, and the violence of the ancient machinery of evil. Let me end with these final reflections uh, coming from both Alan Noble and Tish Harrison Warren in the articles that I've just quoted. Concerning the future of Christianity in the West, Noble wrote this. Tensions between Christians and non-Christians are likely to grow in the coming years as cultural mores shift and out of this tension will come negotiations dialogue, lawsuits, ignorance, and conflict. For evangelicals, preparation for this must begin in our own house as we learn to better discern good theologies of suffering, edifying stories of persecution, and distorted reports of discrimination. And lastly, concerning our praying, for justice are praying these imprecatory psalms against evildoers. Warren wrote this. We don't forego vengeance because we think that human evil isn't worthy of vengeance, but because we believe God is the avenger. And we don't hope for peace only because we're indignant over unjust violence but also because we believe God is indignant and his judgment, not ours, can be trusted. May we all be transformed in our theological and political imagination for the hope and future of our city, in our country, in our showing and telling the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we be bold in our prayers for justice, our longings for justice as we stand with those less privileged and less protected than we are for the sake of Jesus who alone can dismantle the ancient machinery of evil, who alone can cut and will cut the cords of the wicked. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.